Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a podcast dedicated to exploring everything weird about this ineffable universe we call home. Today on the show, we're going to go into Aleister Crowley Part 2. If you need to catch up, then go back and check out Episode 23. Crowley is easily one of the most fascinating and mysterious people who ever lived. We seem to have like a reality-warping bubble around him that made people do what he want and had outcomes or fortune favor him. He was really loved by the flower power movement and uh, any rebellious youth, actually. He's hands down one of the world's most famous occultists and was branded the wickedest man in the world, at least in his time. And there's really probably no man ever to have lived who has scratched the surface of nearly every facet of society in quite the way that Aleister Crowley did. And if you know what to look for, there's easily a lot of public figures who have clearly been influenced by him, or at least his ideas. He was one of the first Western authors to write about Tantra and concepts within Karma uh, and the Kama Sutra, especially. He's always been known as a sexual deviant. But society has come a long way since Crowley's days, and a lot of the things that he was looked down upon for is pretty commonplace nowadays. In any case, the real story behind Mr. Crowley is in stark contrast to the uh, evil black magician sort of way people try to portray him. And though he was a pretty messed up dude, there's a lot more to his story and a lot more uh, nuance. He taught freedom and self-expression and (laughs) basically was the founder of counterculture in the way that we would think of it. And if you get triggered by occult stuff, then you probably shouldn't listen to this episode. Crowley goes hand in hand with the supernatural and we're not going to shy away from anything. This episode, it's it's going to get really weird. So, let's get into it. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Okay, we left off Aleister Crowley at the time in his life when he was just leaving the Golden Dawn and made enemies with most members of the secret society since he had a hand in assisting in the splintering of the group. Though he still at the moment at least had a relationship with McGregor Mathers. The two even got together to do revenge magic against the usurpers of the order, to which Crowley wasn't really impressed by a McGregor's baneful magic. However, I wanted to really quickly address a couple of emails that I got after releasing Aleister Crowley Part 1, in which some people said I was pronouncing his name wrong. They say that it's Crowley, not Crowley. Which is interesting that people might think that they are such experts on a matter that uh, actually has um, a little bit more to it than just being so black and white. The name is pronounced differently depending on where someone is in Great Britain, and accents change over time. 
So depending on where somebody lives in England or anywhere in the British Isles, they probably will pronounce the name differently. Some people are stuck on pronouncing it Crowley because of the demon Crowley from the pretty awesome show Supernatural that has a strong and enduring fan base. However, you can pronounce it any way you like, and Crowley often rhymed his name with the word holy in his diaries and poetry. And last time I checked, holy doesn't rhyme with Crowley. Does rhyme with Crowley, though. But as I said, pronunciations are varied when saying the name, and <laughs> it's not really a big deal. In any case, I'm just going to stick to calling him the way I like to pronounce it, and I think is the correct way to pronounce it, which is Crowley. Where was I? After Crowley left the Golden Dawn, he went to Mexico and pretty much just went off on his own for a while. Always being the social butterfly, he had a wide circle of friends and people that he associated with. He did a lot of traveling and got into a lot of different religions and was even pretty obsessed with Buddhism for a while. But eventually, when he returned to Great Britain, he met a woman named Rose Kelly, who was possibly going to be forced into two loveless marriages. And the two grew fond of each other, though more so in a friendship type way, often going out for walks in nature. Well, actually, I don't mean she was being forced. She wasn't being forced. She just had two proposals for marriage and didn't have the heart to deny her suitors. So she lamented to Crowley her position and that she did not want to marry either of the suitors. She told Crowley that she was actually already in love, but the man was taken, though the thought of an affair with him was constantly in her mind. Which let me put in context really quick, uh, having an affair with somebody was a uh, Something not so strange back then, because men were socially allowed to have a mistress. While Crowley wasn't infatuated with her or consumed in love and whatnot, he did develop a fondness for her and, uh... <laughs> he cared so much about her that he actually made a proposal to her. Literally. He offered to marry her to save her from becoming, um, stuck in... Marriages being arranged for her with men she had no interest in. She agreed. And it was genuinely a loveless, though friendly arrangement, in name only and face value only, in order to save Rose from marriage. This really pissed off her brother, and Crowley had some real heat on him, with the two suitors also seeing red and basically out for his head. Despite the illegitimate nature of the marriage, though, Crowley treated her like any bride should be treated and took her on a legit honeymoon, the whole caboodle. And Crowley, being famously rich, made sure that everything was extravagant, to say the least. With them eventually coming into Cairo, Egypt as one of the stops, and a lot of, uh, allegedly a lot of strange, esoteric stuff happened to them here. At this time, Crowley was more interested in Buddhism than the, uh, the hermetic philosophies and magical teachings of the Golden Dawn. But that was going to change very soon. The newlyweds actually started to become fond of each other, even though their marriage started out in such a farce of a beginning. Crowley became deeply in love with her the more time that he spent with her, and affectionately named her Jezebel. He went way out 
of his way to impress her, even taking her to the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid at Giza for a night. To show her his bravery, he told the servants to get lost and went into the ancient tomb with her having only candlelight to illuminate their journey through the timeless monuments of mystery. Seeking to impress her with his occult skills, he pulled out the Goetia. And, as I said and explained in part one of Aleister Crowley, the Goetia is a grimoire of demons. They are the demons King Solomon bound in the ancient Hebrew tales, and have also been attributed to being a jinn. And it's at this point that you really gotta give Crowley some credit. Summoning demons in an ancient ruin may not sound romantic to some, but to Crowley, it was the height of romance. And it seemed to work on Rose, so he was being a total ladies' man. While reciting the invocations, Crowley says that the dark candlelit pyramid emanated an astral light, allowing him to see perfectly in the darkness without the candle. The experience for Rose goes undocumented as far as my research could find, though I assume she knew what she was getting into with Crowley because he was an open book about it and all his uh, occult practices. But I assume it may have freaked her out a bit. Crowley then took her for some big game hunting, killing lions and leopards and whatnot. They went on a lot of adventures and doing stuff around the world for a bit, but they eventually headed back to Cairo in Egypt until the weather got better in Europe. And this is when things start to get weird. Or weirder, I mean. The two newlyweds rented a flat and Crowley wasted no time in converting an area of the flat to a makeshift temple where he could do his occult practices. And he once again tried to impress Rose, this time by summoning elemental air spirits into the room for her to see. But during the evocations, he, he looked at Rose and she looked like she was out of it, like she was in a trance-like state. She then creepily muttered to him in a voice very different than her normal voice, saying, I quote, They are waiting for you. It's all about the child. All Osiris. End quote. Crowley thought that she was high or drunk or some other fatigue-related thing and didn't really take it at face value, Rose seeming to be channeling something. But this creepiness of Rose seeming to become possessed and tell him otherworldly things continued, and on the third day, he'd had enough. She kept on saying things that she could not have known and Crowley backed up by going to the Egyptian museums and whatnot, and it all revolved around weird ancient mythologies concerning the Egyptian gods. However, Crowley did not take kindly to any spirits possessing his wife, and when he was about to do something about it, Rose said in her possessed-like voice, He who waits is Horus. Now, this caught Pudorabo's attention because Rose wasn't very educated and definitely didn't know Egyptian mythology, and Crowley had never told her either. Well, maybe in passing, during their exploration of the pyramids, he kind of told her some stuff, but he focused more on the history of pharaohs and not myth or the gods. It was completely odd and didn't make any sense that she'd have this information and be telling him it. So he decided to test her in depth, 
Not in an easy way, but in a way only an expert would know. Not something some mere dabbler trying to humor or impress him would know, but things that only somebody who really knew what they're talking about would know. He asked her a lot about Horace, including basic information, as well as his appearance and corresponding things associated with him, including his color, weapon, planet, numbers, morality, and mortal enemy. And to his amazement, she got every question right without even hesitating. In fact, she passed every test he threw at her, and Crowley did indeed begin to think that otherworldly forces were behind her behavior. She even went on to tell him more things that she could never know, and even gave him magical instructions of rituals to perform. And in those rituals and instructions, he was told to await a visitor to teach him. A visitor not of the material world. Now, I'm just going to hop in here really quick to add something for overall clarity here. Even after all these events took place, and even years later, Crowley did not fully believe Rose and all that happened, and he even questioned the true nature of this entity all the way into his final years. Even though he did think that he figured out just who this entity or what this entity was a couple of times, in the end, he was still skeptical. Anyway, Perdurabo waited for the entity to appear just as he was told to do, with a pen ready in hand. After waiting for a while, when he least suspected it, there it was in the corner of the room. This is his description. The voice of Iwas came apparently from over my left shoulder, from the furthest corner of the room. It seemed to echo itself in my physical ear in a very strange manner, hard to describe. The voice was of deep timber, musical and expressive, its tones solemn, voluptuous, tender, fierce, or aught else as suited the moods of the message. Not bass, perhaps, a rich tenor or baritone. Its English was free of either native or foreign accent, purely pure of local or castle mannerisms, thus startling and even uncanny at first hearing. I had a strong impression that the speaker was actually in the corner where he seemed to be, in a body of fine matter, transparent as a veil of gas or a cloud of incense smoke. He seemed to be a tall, dark man in his thirties, well-knit, active and strong, with the face of a savage king, and eyes veiled lest their gaze should destroy what they saw. The dress was not Arab, it suggested Assyria or Persia, but very vaguely. End quote. He didn't know the name of the entity at first and assumed it to be the Egyptian god Horus. But Iwas was just a messenger. The entity claimed to have lived in Chaldea during the reign of Hammurabis, around 1750 BCE. But, in a later book, Crowley said it was his higher self, or holy guardian angel. Then still later, he'd have different suspicions about the entity. But one of the overarching, uh, eventual conclusions was that the entity was the messenger of Horparkrat the god of silence and an aspect of Horus from ancient Egyptian mythology. 
The entity told Perturabo that he was the prophet of a new ion that must come after massive death and destruction attributed to the two coming world wars. And for those who don't know what an ion is, ion means an age. So for example, an ion could be analogous to the industrial age or the Renaissance or medieval times like the Dark Ages, uh, you know, just like an age in history. Now, being a magician, Perturabo was quite used to incomprehensible experiences that were anomalous to everyday life, and so was not overly afraid by the entity or nervous or anything like that. He just calmly documented everything it said. Iwas began the whole interaction by talking about the Egyptian goddess Nuit, who's basically the universe, both infinite and incomplete at the same time. Even though everything in all planes of reality is a part of the goddess, she willingly splits herself up into distinct elements, objects, and identities to bring form to material matter and non-material matter too. The entity told Perturabo just a bunch of mind-bogglingly weird stuff and eventually got to a line that would become a core tenet of his later-in-life religion that Crowley would create. Or it's... It's a philosophy too, but I'm talking about his main gig, Thelema. And that line that the entity said, Love is the law, love under will. This that thou writest is the threefold book of law. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Thou hast no right but to do thy will. Do that and no other shall say nay, for pure will Unassuaged of purpose, delivered from the lust of result, is every way perfect. End quote. Now, I should probably hop in here really quick to clarify that when uh, referring to the will, when people talk about the will in esoteric circles, you shouldn't think it's referring to willpower. The will that's being referenced is not the normal way it would be talked about in everyday life. And I don't want you to misunderstand what is being said here. The will is not conscious desire and has nothing to do with wanting something or determination or anything like that. The will is not desire. You can admire or want something consciously but the subconscious mind is what always dictates the action. The habits that people establish are ruled by the subconscious mind, and it's those habits that will dictate the actions of that person. Desire is wanting, and wanting alone is not nearly close enough to change the subconscious programming in any person's unconscious. Someone can want to quit smoking and pump themselves up that they only need enough willpower to quit, only to fail over and over again. And that's because it's that person's will to smoke. And in order to quit smoking, that person first has to change the subconscious beliefs that drive them. Only then will they have success. So the will in reference according to esoteric teachings these people are coming from is best described as an embodiment, the state of becoming. Becoming the thing you desire. 
You must become something in one's own state of mind before the will can act. And, and that's the best way I can think of to explain that. And if that doesn't make sense, I understand. But I do have another example that I think might illuminate the meaning or make sense to a lot of people. What just what the will is, at least according to the wisdom traditions. People think they need money to become rich, but this actually violates the law of will. You must first become wealthy and successful in your own state of mind and embody wealth and success, and then the will can act. If you're coming from a place of inner abundance, the will can assist in gaining wealth. But if you're coming from a place of inner scarcity, it doesn't matter what you do. You will never have what you desire. You have to embody what you seek according to the paradigm required, which usually means a lot of subconscious cleaning. Being able to communicate with the subconscious is the best way to alter the embodiment one has to the alignment associated with the will. Which I'm sure doesn't make any sense, but there you go. Hello, my name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm a Loch Ness monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to blueberry.com or by going to crypticchronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. So in Crowley's teachings, when he says, do what thou wilt, he's not saying do whatever you want. It's actually a cop-out. A lot of people who judge things at face value without thinking or educating themselves on a point, try to point out this phrase, do what thou wilt, as an example of Thelema being evil. They say that Thelema preaches to people to do whatever they want, no matter how despicable, with no consequences, which actually couldn't be further from the truth. 
He is not saying and never said it as a justification to do whatever one wants, no matter how cruel, evil, weird, or whatever. He's talking about the will. The occult mission is actually self-development to the point that one can shape the will to be in line with the true will, which is a fancy way to say to discover one's purpose, destiny, greatest attributes they possess, and what road they should walk down to utilize their gifts, etc. To utilize the true will is to discover all the things you're good at or better at than others. It's essentially self-actualization to achieve one's greatest possible potential in one lifetime. To know your true will and follow it is uh, someone who knows their goals, purpose, and what they want to do and where they want to go in life with utter faith and dedication that can be said to embody their will. It's just a matter of letting go of all the things that don't serve the will or has vandalized it in the subconscious mind. The do what thou wilt saying was corrupted by other fake occultists over the years to justify evil and um, all kinds of messed up stuff in the later 20th century. But that stuff is not what Crowley meant or how it was meant to be understood. In any case, I'm going to go on a break and we will be right back. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Hi there. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry. And if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. We'll even give your podcast a shout out. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show, but most of all, thanks for listening. Dear listener, have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time, and give a clear and concise account. 
Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clearer picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. Okay, back to good old Perdurabo and uh, his interaction with Iwas, an entity sent by the god Horus himself. What Iwas was teaching Perdurabo was the beginnings of a philosophy slash religion completely based around the notion of true will and go on to be known as Thelema. The true will is divinely inspired and anybody who lives their life by it is basically set and has the entire universe backing them up. Though, like the majority of Crowley's esoteric teachings, the true will and will in general are pretty universal across all the mystery traditions of the West, especially in his main source of knowledge, the Golden Dawn. That doesn't mean, though, that Thelema is not completely, uniquely Crowley. More so, he just had a lot of influences. The Greek word Thelema can be translated to the English word for will, hence the name. Thelema is based on the belief in a cosmic scheme of the universe, and every being is given a purpose to complete, a path to walk, or karma to follow, and to devote yourself to utterly. This purpose must be made to be embodied with the will. And it's this will that Crowley is referring to when saying, do what thou wilt. And don't get me wrong, this is just uh, me portraying this information. The lima sounds really nice, but it has a whole case of issues about it. And Golden Dawn people actually hate it. I'm not going to get into that, though. I'm going to focus on Alistair as best I can. So, back to Iwas. Where was I? Superdorabo was dictated all this stuff for long periods of time by Iwas. This divine purpose, aka will, was to be pursued to the exclusion of all other things other than practicalities and necessities. Iwas claimed that if everybody in the world did this, then there would cease to be any conflict on the planet whatsoever. Bloody conflict, I mean, obviously there will always be opposition and competitiveness for the stronger and more driven to end up on top, but the violent nature of humanity would cease in their endless aggression against one another, and a person practicing their true will would have the universe itself behind them in support. That's basically the summed up most important stuff of Iwas's message to Crowley. But who knows what was really going on in that room. I mean, this stuff just seems so... different. But for the sake of authenticity when covering this, let's assume the accounts are true. And Iwas was really dictating this to Perturabo. Then Iwas said, The manifestation of Nuit is at an end. And then the entity vanished. Over the next two days, these encounters would continue, and when it was all complete, the results 
was called the Book of the Law, which is the backbone of Crowley's new mystery school slash philosophy slash religion of Thelema. And from that point on, Crowley's life was changed forever. And there's like a lot of legends that revolve around all this. Allegedly, on some occasions when the entity was speaking to him, Perturabo argued with it. He had a strong Buddhist leaning because of his buddy from the Golden Dawn and his spiritual journeys through the East. And the law of Thelema went against the first noble truth of Buddhism that taught existence without enlightenment was inherently sorrow. To which the entity countered by saying that he just had a lot to unlearn. Crowley would later write how the experience was more spiritually profound than anything he'd ever felt, but it was also insanely exhausting. Though the thing that Crowley loved the most about all of what Iwas came to tell him was how blatantly blasphemous it was. Crowley always loved his blasphemy. The Lima had a very positive outlook on life, which went totally against every religion he'd ever studied especially the most tyrannical one in Crowley's view, Christianity. His father was obsessed with it, and he loved his father, but he couldn't help breaking his vows to the egregore of the Golden Dawn and holding all religions in reverence without judgment. Crowley always smeared the religion whenever and however he could. The only thing Crowley had ever come across that was remotely similar to Thelema was Tantra, which is something he gets really into later with his sex magic. But don't worry, we'll get there. One of the many reasons mainstream Christian society hated him so much, because he openly taught against the narrative that all humans were born sinful and fallen and needed to be saved. The whole, the world is evil and humans are evil and nature is evil and pleasure is evil and knowledge is evil. Um, brainwashed Christians, they all really bothered him. He made it one of his life missions to tear down the shackles of Christianity. And his war on Christianity made him a ridiculous amount of enemies because there were so many Christians everywhere back then. It was the culture that was all the rage. Like, we're used to being spoiled with all kinds of different stuff to focus on. Not back then. They really subscribed to this meme. So, there you go. Curly's first super crazy experience with a supernatural entity. A bad side effect of this encounter is probably Iwas calling him the prophet of a new age. Because considering Crowley's already ridiculously enormous ego, which was always his undoing and downfall, calling him a prophet was probably a pretty bad idea that didn't help much. But the notion that existence could and should be enjoyed would go on to be the main tenet of his esoteric philosophy. The main thing that freaked Crowley out about the whole Book of the Law thing is actually the last chapter. Iwash channeled the Egyptian war god Rahur Kuit, who said some pretty unsettling things to him that were not only apocalyptic but blasphemous to many religions. I quote, With my hawk's head I peck at the eyes of Jesus as he hangs on the cross, 
I flap my wings in the face of Muhammad and blind him. With my claws, I tear out the flesh of the Indian and the Buddhist, Mongol and Din, Bahalasti, Ompeda. I spit on your crapulous creeds. End quote. That's some pretty messed up and dark imagery concerning the world's major religions, even for Perturabo. But then again, the entity was calling him the prophet of a new age, and everything that came before should be slain. He should absolutely destroy all of the aspect of himself that he was before meeting Iwas. Supposedly. Well, let's just entertain the idea that he was actually talking to an entity known as Iwas. It all caused Crowley to initially reject the Book of the Law and its teachings, despite its horrific visions of a bloody end to the Abrahamic religions he so feverishly desired. He thought the entity might be evil, or a demon, or something sinister in general. It only became apparent to him later that all the visualizations were actually symbolism, like so many other teachings handed down allegedly from entities just like Iwas. Things were deeper than face appearance. It was symbolic of the abrogation or letting go of past creeds of indoctrination. Crowley says it took three days and three hours to write down the Book of the Law. And for the rest of his life, he would swear to anyone who asked that the book's writings didn't come from him. He wasn't the author. Iwas was. He would always say that he was never inspired to write it. It was dictated to him. But most of all, Crowley was meant to be busy because Iwas gave him specific instructions on what to do with the Book of the Law. But these directions were ridiculous and didn't make any sense. Perhaps the entity was out of touch with how normal humans live, or just like didn't understand exactly what it was asking Crowley to do. But in any case, Crowley found Iwas's instructions to be completely unrealistic. Instead of following all the bizarre instructions, he just sent out typescripts announcing the dawn of a new era, and then just set the book aside and set sail for Europe. And uh, here's a couple of the bizarre instructions that Iwas gave to Alistair Crowley. Iwas told him to buy an island, uh, steal an ancient Egyptian artifact from a museum, fortify the island, and fill it with enough weapons for a small army. Oh, and translate the Book of the Law into every single language on Earth. And then spend a fortune to create an elaborate edition of the book and publish it all across English-speaking nations. So Crowley was like, yeah, no. Instead, he just left Egypt on a luxury boat and the Book of the Law was released to the world in the most humble way possible at the time. The Crowleys then returned to Britain at their home in Loch Ness. And despite Rose being pregnant, the Crowleys still practiced the occult together religiously. And Rose apparently kept her seership ability gained in Egypt. And they did some pretty weird stuff like eating cakes made with menstrual blood. And these cakes summoned beetles and then they'd eat the beetles. The esoteric beetles that were summoned in this ritual were sent to London's Natural History Museum. Where the entomologist claimed that he'd never seen such a beetle before. And that they had no records of it. But... 
Despite all these weird experiments that the Crowleys were doing, what was really consuming Alistair's mind was his old teacher. The old bard had sent a copy of the Book of the Law to Mathers, along with a letter that Crowley knew he wouldn't most likely be very entertained by. That the quote-unquote secret chiefs had made Perturabo the new head of the Order of the Golden Dawn. Predictably, there was only silence as a response to his letter, so Crowley began to expect some issues with his old friend. He wondered if Mathers was jealous that he'd been chosen by Iwas, or that he was chosen for the Book of the Law. And Mathers' ego would never allow Crowley to have such an honor over him. Crowley was most likely right, but for the wrong reasons, and, uh, and assumed that he'd made an enemy by sending Mathers the letter and Book of the Law. Unlikely synchronicities started to make him paranoid. His dog died randomly for seemingly no reason, and then Rose was assaulted by a servant. Figuring that Mathers was attacking him, Crowley did a very Crowley thing to do and summoned the demon Beelzebub to defend him against the head of the Golden Dawn. This sparked a legendary occult battle between the two, where both Crowley and Mathers summon a bunch of demons and occult entities to attack and be defended. Shadow people, horrific dreams, and unnatural events followed. And even people who just had associations with the two magicians seemed to become haunted with paranormal activity rampant. The duel ended in Mather's defeat, and according to his wife, it was this battle that he had with Alistair Crowley, who sent a particularly nasty astral vampire entity, basically giving Mathers his final blows. But Perdurabo did not manage to kill him. It did uh, pretty much... Uh, mean from this point on in McGregor Mather's life, uh, it's really not known. Like, nobody knows what he did after this. He kind of faded into obscurity. Though he never ceased his work in the Golden Dawn and had his own branch of, uh, that lives on till this day. But this was not the end of his beef with Crowley. But Crowley was officially kicked out from Mather's, uh, branch of the Golden Dawn. Obviously. Welcome to the Chamber of Mysteries. I am Anubis, the Egyptian god of death and guide through the underworld. Recently, the goddess Ma'at pointed out to me that the scales of justice have not been in balance. This is not good and can bring chaos to the multiverse. But you, dear mortal, may help in averting this cosmic disaster by supporting Cryptic Chronicles. In doing so, you will gain ad-free episodes of the podcast, as well as bonus content only for patrons. In spreading free thinking and higher knowledge, the forces of darkness are kept at bay. Simply subscribe to the Chronicler's Vault at crypticchronicles.com. And by pledging a single dollar a month, you 
can help keep Apophis in the void, and Ra's sky chariot soaring proudly through the universe. Anubis, don't forget to tell them about iTunes and spreading the show. Oh, right. Thank you, Ma'at. Please, mortal, help broaden the scope of listeners for the podcast by leaving a good review on iTunes and share every episode or any Cryptic Chronicles content as much as you can, spreading it across all the consciousness of humanity. Help fight the darkness by supporting Cryptic Chronicles and assist the goddess of the scales and I, Anubis, god of death, and bringing balance to the planes of existence. Farewell, mortal. Meanwhile, in the real world, Crowley's books had not been selling. His disappointment was tangible. It didn't help, too, that Crowley had been accused of strangling an innocent woman, even though there was no proof or evidence of the assault. So he created his own publishing company. After all, Crowley considered a lot of his writing to be amazing and profound, even though reviewers found much of his work unintelligible. Crowley kind of seems like he was blinded about his uh, writing abilities at the time, and sadly didn't really do any kind of course correction. So he wasn't as good as he thought he was, and he wouldn't listen to anybody's advice. But despite his business issues concerning his books, Rose gave birth to a healthy daughter he named Nuit Ma Ahathor, Hakate, Safo, Jezebel, Lilith. Which is a mouthful, to say the least. To celebrate the birth of the child, the Crowleys had a ton of house guests and constant activity. With the celebrating being extravagant and going on for a while. Rose wanted some normal books while she got back on her feet from giving birth. Not really interested in the plethora of esoteric texts that littered the home. So Crowley decided to write a romance novel for her, which is hilarious because he had zero experience in uh, this form of creative writing. And it was just as vulgar as you would expect a, a love novel written by Alistair Crowley to be. However, when he did readings of chapters to his guests, they loved it. Whether they were just entertaining him or really liked it is up for debate, though when he tried to get the book published, obviously no publisher in England would touch it. When things began to die down a bit and all the guests finally cleared out from the Crowley household, Alistair decided to put aside his esoteric work and focus on being a husband and a father as best he could. Though Crowley was never meant for such a life and it was unnatural for him to attempt. During this time though, he kept on keeping on with his poetry and was actually pretty successful at it. He would continue to write and publish books without an editor or someone to critique him and help him in his writing to get better. 
But he also did a couple of shady things concerning his literature that he'd gotten from the Golden Dawn, such as McGregor Mather's translation of the Book of the Goetia, in which Crowley had stolen and uh, published and took all the credit for it, only crediting Mathers as a dead hand. And <laughs> that's actually, and that's really messed up. So Mathers sued him, but lost the court case. He should have done a better job with all of his trademarks. So even till this day, a lot of people credit that book as uh, Crowley writing it, but no, he did not write that at all. That's all McGregor and Mathers. To the ignorant on the subject, the name Aleister Crowley inspires images of Satanism, devil worship, debauchery, and evil. But though Crowley is a famously colorful character from history, not many know of his amazing climbing career, in which he climbed many of the world's most inaccessible and hostile mountain conditions. This is a huge mistake when looking at Crowley because he was so much more than mainstream awareness would ever suggest because he's a world record-breaking rock climber. I talked about how he was a professional and very successful and talented poet in part one, but his rock climbing career was really a badass, and he deserves some kudos for his insane bravery and determination. And the climbing bug was once again getting to Crowley. In 1902, he had failed an attempt to climb K2 the second highest mountain in the world located in India, which had never been climbed by any European before. The freezing weather was merciless, and the lack of oxygen caused people to become delirious. Normal rational men with newly formed signs of madness was common, and the large expedition just suffered a great amount of hardship. Crowley even kind of snapped at one point, pulling a revolver on someone only to be disarmed by a sneaky punch to the gut. But in the end, the expedition was forced to abandon the attempt or die. They did break some world records, though, despite their inability to reach the summit. Despite the whole K2 situation and failure, Crowley was an amazing climber with incredible passion. And one day when entertaining a man named Jacot Guillemard, I'm not going to say it like that. From now on, I'm going to refer to him as Gwilarmod. Yeah. When entertaining a man named Jakot Gilarmod, the topic of adventure came up and Crowley took him out for a hunt, killing a ram. But this small feat only poked the two men's desire for a new great adventure. Something bigger. They were talking about possible glory, glory of the past, and they came to the idea of a new expedition. Guilarmad proposed that the two of them organize an expedition to climb Kentacharjunga, which just so happened to be the third highest mountain in the world, located in the Himalayas. Many climbers thought it to be the most dangerous mountain in the world, which Crowley considered a worthy challenge. He was still pissed off about the K2 expedition, but he felt like he learned a lot from it, and um, the two assembled an expedition and headed to India. However, things hardly went as Crowley planned. Galarmad turned out to have a very fragile ego, and he also turned out to not be one-tenth the climber that Alistair was. 
Many of the servants helping the expedition were clueless too. The whole expedition was grueling from the start, and Gilarmod started causing issues in the party almost immediately. Crowley was the leader of the expedition, but Gilarmod started getting passive-aggressive and gossiping about Crowley to the other members of the expedition. At one point, there was an avalanche, and Crowley told them all to stand firm in a certain location. But one man freaked out, untying himself in an attempt to run. Thinking fast, Crowley hit the man on the head with the flat of his axe, which saved everyone's lives. The avalanche did not happen. Instead of being thankful, this actually began a rumor in the whole expedition that Crowley would beat people if they displeased him, which kind of threw a funk into the teamwork of the group. This incident and Galarmod not following directions put their expedition behind schedule, and the weather was making them pay for that. Crowley saw this and saw what was going to happen if they didn't pick up the pace. He tried to tell Galarmod, but Galarmod didn't care for reason, and at one point, he even refused to leave his camp so that his men could bask in the sun for a while. Concerning climbing skills and knowledge, this situation is analogous to Crowley being a math expert stuck in a classroom full of kindergartners. With the rumors against him and Gilarmod sabotaging the expedition at every turn, Crowley was finding it very difficult to keep the expedition on track. But his attempts were futile, because eventually Gilarmod declared that the expedition was over after an argument and he turned the men around to descend back down the mountain. Though the old bard knew that if they did that, men were going to die. Alistair pleaded for them to wait till the next morning because then it would be safe. The weather was too bad at the moment, the wind too strong, the snow too fresh, the weather completely unfavorable to accomplish such a trek. But they ignored him going down anyway. Shaking his head at the fools, Crowley let them go, knowing full well their risk. So Crowley did what practicality dictated and made up his camp until it would be safe to descend the mountain. Well, he actually wasn't alone in the tent. One of his buddies did stay with him. However, not long afterward, Alistair Crowley felt the mountain vibrate in an elevating rumble, and he heard the cascading cacophony of a roaring avalanche coming down the mountain. The expedition was swiftly overtaken by it, exactly as Crowley had predicted, and people died. Now, there's a couple different directions this part of Crowley's story can go, depending on where you're getting your research. A superstitious version of events states that Crowley was incredibly angry and felt humiliated by Galarmod, who was also frustrated with the inabilities of the men in the expedition and that people wouldn't listen to him. And in truth, if they had just listened to his direction, the expedition would most likely have been successful. To get revenge for this, Crowley turned to his occult training, and supposedly it was him that caused the avalanche through his mystic power whether through entities known as elementals or other bizarre nature spirits, the magician manifested the entire incident to get back at the expedition that had defied him. 
that this is a very, very esoteric version of events and seems impossible. But even the most popular version of events paints Crowley as behaving in an evil manner. One of the most mainstream views says that after the avalanche, Crowley just kind of hung out in his tent and listened to the men screaming, doing nothing to help and, uh, yeah, leading to fatalities. And just a rumor of something like that could ruin somebody's climbing career. And indeed, after this incident, his professional climbing career was over. But contrary to what many people claim, Crowley had no idea the men were in trouble. The buddy who stayed with him, his name was Raymond. Well, after the avalanche, Raymond thought that he heard yelling. He told Crowley that he wanted to go check it out, but Crowley thought that he was just abandoning him too, like everybody else did. He told him, We'll send word back if you need help. Then after Raymond left, Crowley just went to sleep. Well, that's that's uh, that's Crowley's version of events, at least. The others claim to the press and everyone else that he didn't help on purpose. And even Raymond's diary backs that claim up. When Alistair awoke and descended the mountain, he came upon the injured survivors, including Gularmod. The man not only physically in great pain, but mentally battered. What words were spoken between Galarmod and Crowley at that moment, I could not find, though I'd really like to know what was said. Many of the men moaned in pain, and there were faces missing from the party, most likely stiff and blue far beneath the snow. When the expedition told Crowley what happened, he was furious because one of his friends were among the dead. He said if they just listened to him, his friend Pachi and the others would still be alive and well. And Crowley seemed to be basically just as mad at them as they were at him. Despite that, he helped get them back in climbing shape anyway, but let's just say the whole expedition from that point on was really awkward and they all abandoned the attempt. The Mountain One expedition canceled. The disaster started a war in the press. Even though Alistair was right and the whole tragedy only happened because they'd ignored his warnings, but he was outnumbered and the climbing community would utterly destroy his credibility. Also, the whole experience seemed to have a permanent effect on Crowley. Though many expeditions after this would try and die, the mountain would not be officially conquered until 1955. Despite his name being dragged through the mud, in modern times, Crowley is actually celebrated as one of the most accomplished and talented climbers of his era. And he's considered incredibly important in the history of mountain climbing. The author of A Brief History of British Mountaineering in 2002 had plenty of wonderful things to say about him. And I quote, Crowley was outrageous. He was obviously good, something of a rock star climber, in fact. He was light years ahead of his time in his attitude to tackling vertical chalk cliffs. The ground he covered was without a doubt amongst the most technically difficult in Britain but his achievements were never really appreciated in his lifetime. End quote. 
A lot of pretentious climbing clubs and fraternities of the time hated Crowley and went way out of their way to destroy his climbing reputation. They attempted to diminish or even in some cases outright erase his monumental achievements. But they couldn't beat time and modern rock climbers see him for the all-star he was. In hindsight, Crowley is now looked at as one of the greatest climbers of all time. And uh, we're nearing Crowley's 30th birthday, and Crowley wasn't having the greatest time. He wanted to be an acclaimed poet, and his books still were not selling. And his climbing achievements for over a decade went unrecognized, and he was basically... He was basically ostracized and kicked out of the professional rock climbing community. Across the board, he was being unrecognized. The old bard tried his best to suppress his experience with Iwas and the Book of the Law, but it slowly ate away at him from the corner of his consciousness. The rejection and magical battle with Mathers too weighed heavy on him, and all in all, he seemed somewhat lost at this time in his life, and somewhat jaded, being unsatisfied with basically everything. He ceased being able to be inspired to write poetry, or do... and pretty much any of his passions. It all just seemed pointless to him. He was already a worldwide traveler, but even traveling didn't seem to inspire him anymore. However, Alistair Crowley slowly realized that there actually was something in the world that could still inspire emotions in him. Something that made him feel alive. Something that gave him purpose and that he could throw himself into. And that is the occult. There was always Perturabo, his other self. Crowley would go on many adventures for a while, even having to shoot people with a fucking pistol trying to mug him in a foreign country, and then having to flee to China... But despite all that happened to him, nothing would ever get in the way of Perturabo's work. He felt even more inspired after being thrown off a 40-foot cliff by a horse and just getting up and dusting himself off completely unharmed. It seemed impossible he was alive, much less uninjured, but there he was. This incident made him realize just how many times he'd actually had near-death experiences which was a lot. He'd nearly been killed countless times in the wilderness, and he remembered when he was a sickly child, the doctor said he wouldn't even survive into adulthood. He remembered the recent mugging and how he narrowly avoided death from his homemade bomb as a youngster, not to mention all his travels, and back then traveling was actually insanely dangerous. All this made Alistair Crowley think he had a destiny to fulfill and he began to constantly ponder about the encounter with Iwas and the Book of the Law. From this point on in his life, Perturabo would have more power over his life than Alistair, and the occult and magic would be the driving force that guided him.
Uh, you know the drill. Thank you for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Make sure that you subscribe to us on social media. Um, if you have time, please give us a good review on iTunes or whatever app or host site you use to get the episodes. And if you really, really like the show, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just a buck a month, you can unlock all kinds of goodies and join the Discord server. Shout out to my current patrons, mostly my newest patron, Paul. Hey, thanks, Paul. You're a fucking awesome guy. Shout out to you, Kenny, Stephanie Wilkie, Angela Delaire, or Angie Allen, Leanne Watson, Mark Lane, and Linda Gonzalez. Thank you so much. Um, We're going to be best friends forever, so I hope that you are prepared for that. Thank you for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. I'm your host, Tim Hacker. And as a brilliant writer once said, all the gods, all the heavens, all the hells are within you.